Thank you for downloading Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, an exploration of the Book of Samuel. This series is in partnership with the Koran Podcast Network and is lovingly sponsored by the Neustein family in memory of Rabbi Dr. Joseph Neustein for his fourth yard site. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. And now, Michael Hatton. Welcome back, everyone, to our Pardes podcast on Sefer Shemuel. Last time we talked about chapter 14, which was the return of Avshalom to Jerusalem. Remember that Avshalom, after having killed his brother or half-brother, Amnon, fled to his grandfather, Talmai, the king of Geshur, and there he remained in exile for a period of three years. In the end, he was restored through the machinations, or actually the plans, of Yoav, who brought on board the woman of Tikawa with her wise parable, able to convince David to restore Avshalom to Jerusalem. And last time I presented the theory that in fact her argument was that the continuation of the kingdom really depended upon it. In effect, with Amnon dead and David's second son, Kilav, out of the running, it was naturally Avshalom that was the next in line for succession. For him to remain in exile, therefore, would have possibly led to a downfall of the kingdom after David's death. So Avshalom returns. And in the end, after two more years of waiting, he is seemingly reconciled to his father, David. David meets with him. David kisses him. But in fact, we discover that their relationship has not been repaired. And this seems to be a recurring theme in the story. Every moment when we think we have reached a potential crossroads, resolution before us, we discover to our horror that in fact things are far from resolved and actually become even more and more messy. And all of this again, as I said, the backdrop for it being David's crime with Bathsheba and how Natan indicated in no uncertain terms that the aftermath of that crime would continue to reverberate down the dynasty of David until the end of time. Chapter 15 begins with Avshalom now taking initiative. We already learned in the previous chapter that he was a handsome fellow. His hair was exceptional. Of course, that's also a foreshadowing of future events. At the same time, Avshalom is direct. Avshalom is forceful. Avshalom can be lethal and Avshalom has an extremely loyal following because he is, after all, a charismatic man. Chapter 15 begins with Avshalom preparing for himself a chariot and horses and 50 runners to go before him. All of these are, of course, royal trappings. Avshalom is making it quite clear that his eventual goal, and in the not-too-distant future, is to become king in place of his father. We note, of course, a parallel to the beginning of the Book of Kings, 
When David is already old and infirm, it will be another son, Adoniyahu, the son of Hagit, that employs exactly the same strategy of the chariot and the horsemen and the runners in order to project royalty to the masses. But at the same time, even as Avshalom projects this authority status, this royal status, he also makes himself out to be a champion of his subjects. He is absolutely a consummate politician and populist. He plants himself at the gates leading towards David's palace, and whoever seeks David's assistance, David's judgment, David's help, Avshalom will head him off and he will say, where are you from, dear sir? And he will say, I see that your arguments and your claims are so substantial, but there is no one in the king's court to hear you. Verse number three, Avshalom proclaimed, who will make me a judge in this land so that whoever has a difficulty a quarrel in need of a judgment may come to me and I will find him innocent and I will find him right. Now, possibly what Avshalom is suggesting is with the court, David's court, in firm control, what that means, of course, is that the people have obligations towards the king. They have to pay their tax. They have to show up for the corvée. They have other responsibilities. And in fact, Avshalom might be saying, when people come to the king and they ask for clemency or they claim that somehow the king or the court is misappropriating their property, Avshalom will step in and, as it were, become the ombudsman that makes sure that the court functions with righteousness. Whenever anyone approaches to bow down to him, because he was, after all, a prince, Avshalom would stop him. He would send forth his hand. He would hold that individual and he would kiss him. Thus did Avshalom to all those of Israel who came for judgment before the king. Verse number six, Vayiganev Avshalom et lev anshei Yisrael. Avshalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. But in the original Hebrew, Lignov lev has a sense of deception associated with it. So even though Avshalom surely is a character, who is uh, filled with righteous indignation, and we have seen that already. At the same time, clearly at this point in his story, Avshalom is now using that as a cover to install himself as king. If we review some of the, the, these events up until now, we might say the following. David, as you recall, uh, may, as you may recall, did not actually punish Amnon when Amnon raped Tamar. David was upset and David was angry and David did nothing and Avshalom saw that. And Avshalom realized, as I pointed out at the time, that David had lost his moral stature and he could not even punish his own son, the crown prince, for his obvious crime against Tamar. 
And so within Avshalom's heart, no doubt, there was a resentment which grew and grew during the years of his exile and during the years of his isolation when he returned to Yerushalayim. And no doubt, he saw his father David as being ineffectual as a leader, as a righteous leader, as a righteous king. And on some level of shalom, I am sure, was convinced that he could do a better job. But at the same time, we have already received indications that there is something else which is creeping into his plans. It's no longer about righting the wrongs. Now it's about becoming king and acquiring the power and the authority associated with that office. Or, to put it in different terms, of Shalom's initial intentions may have been pure. But with that report in the previous chapter of his handsomeness, his hair, his public persona, and how that is now reinforced by his actions now to deceive the people of Israel, we should appreciate that something is changing insofar as his character is concerned, insofar as his motivations are concerned, and ultimately Avshalom will not be looking out for the benefit of his subjects, but actually for his own power. It was at the end of 40 years, and the text here reports 40 years in verse 7. The commentaries are unsure what the reference point is. Perhaps Rashi's reading from the rabbis is most plausible. The 40 years refer to the time when the people of Israel first installed a king, and now it seems as if the experiment perhaps will come crashing down. Avshalom turned to his father, the king, and he said, Allow me to go and fulfill my vows, which I vowed to the Lord in Hebron, because even while I was in exile in Geshur, I made a vow to God. If God would only restore me to Yerushalayim, then I will serve God. And David as king, sends Avshalom on his way, and Avshalom now heads to Hebron. Little does David know that Avshalom has already laid the groundwork for insurrection. His planted people are already in position. When you hear the sound of the shofar, he says, you must proclaim Avshalom is now king in Hebron. With Avshalom go 200 officials from the court in Jerusalem, knowing nothing about Avshalom's plan, and they make their way with Avshalom, they will eventually be caught up in the events when Avshalom proclaims himself as king. We might wonder why Avshalom chooses to do this in Hebron and not in Jerusalem. Well, first of all, David is king in Jerusalem, so that would be a difficult prospect for Avshalom to challenge David in his capital, Avshalom instead heads to Hebron, which is, of course, the tribal capital of Yehuda, his power base, as it were, and in the popular imagination, also the place where David began his kingship after the death of Shaul. 
as if to say, like father, like son, I'm following in father's footsteps, except I'm even going to surpass him. So Avshalom now heads to Hebron to proclaim himself as king with his supporters, with his men, with the people that are brought along from the court that have no idea that they are in fact pawns in his plan. There is one more individual, Achitophel of Gilo, who is David's counsel, David's advisor. Avshalom summons him from Gilo, and Achitophel now joins the rebels. This is a stunning turn of events because as we will see, Achitophel is regarded as one of the most wise advisors of David, and for him to now be jumping ship and coming in league with Avshalom must have been a terrible blow. The coronation takes place, the broadcast is made, the message comes to David, the heart of the people of Israel is after and with Avshalom, and David turns to his men, his supporters, his court, and he says two words, Kumu v'nivracha, let us arise and let us flee. There will not be a remnant before Avshalom. And quickly, David orders his court to evacuate with his servants, with his men, with his warriors. Everything is left behind in a terrible haste. And we might wonder why. Why doesn't David remain in Jerusalem and defend the city? And I hear, here I think that it's clear David realizes if Avshalom arrives with his force, he will besiege the city and he will reduce the city and he will kill the inhabitants of the city in order to capture his father. In effect, what David is doing, and I would say in a very, very noble way, is actually preventing the destruction of the capital and preventing the eruption of a full-fledged civil war. So David evacuates the city without a fight, with his court, with his men, with his warriors, and very shortly Avshalom will enter the capital of the kingdom completely unopposed. David and his men began the journey eastwards from the city. They are planning to go into the wilderness. The topography of Jerusalem is such that east of Jerusalem, eventually one travels through the Kidron Valley, ascends the Mount of Olives, and continues eastward into the inhospitable and desolate landscape of the Judean desert, always a haven for those that are escaping from civilization. And that, of course, is David's destination, perhaps ultimately to cross the River Jordan. That's, in fact, what will happen in order to, uh, in order to be able to regroup and in order to be able to survive. David turns to Itai from Gat. We have not met him before. Itai is planning to accompany David into exile. David attempts to dissuade him, but Itai says, no, through thick or thin, I am coming with you. And this, of course, speaks worlds 
to the loyalty of David's men and David's fighters. They will not leave his side. As the procession makes its way, it is a sobering sight. Everyone is in tears. The people are making their way through the valley of Kidron and Evyatar and Tzadok, the priests, bear the Ark of the Lord in order to accompany David into exile. And the king, David, says, Hamelech says to Tzadok, restore the Ark of the Lord to the city. If I find favor in the eyes of God, he will restore me and he will allow me to gaze upon his habitation. And if God thus says, I have no desire for you, then let him do what is fit in his eyes. And here, of course, one might say, there is a resignation in David's words. Let the ark be restored to Jerusalem where it belongs. That is the habitation of God. Let it not accompany me into exile. And if I merit it, if it be God's will that I be restored to Jerusalem, then I will gaze upon the ark once again, the very ark that I brought to Jerusalem and turned it into the spiritual center of the people of Israel. So David is resigned. David, as it were, is prepared to now embrace the punishment that Natan the prophet had foretold. Surely David realizes, even as he leaves the city, that all of this comes in the aftermath of those terrible events. Tzadok and Eviatar returned the ark to Jerusalem. David was ascending the ascent of the olives. We call that today the Mount of Olives. Ascending and crying, verse number 30. His head was covered in the manner of mourners, and he walked barefoot like those that are in mourning, and so too all of his followers, all of them ascending and crying. What a pathetic sight. David was told, Achitophel is among the rebels with Avshalom. And David proclaimed, May God cancel the advice of Achitophel. Reaching the summit of the Mount of Olives, the very place where he would have prostrated himself in the direction of Jerusalem and prayed to God, he is now met by Hushai Ha'arki. Hushai is one of David's loyal followers. Again, we haven't met him before. His mantle was torn there was earth on his head, expressions of mourning and exile and sadness. And David says to him, you are an older man, Hushai. If you accompany us, you will slow us down. You can better serve me by coming to Jerusalem and somehow undermining the counsel of Achitophel. Present your, yourself to Avshalom as a loyal follower of the new king, and in that way you will succeed in canceling out the advice of Achitophel such that we have a fighting chance. 
you will be there, Tzadok and Nevyatar will be there, and whatever news has to be conveyed to me and to my men, it will be done so through the children, the sons of Tzadok and Nevyatar. Their names are Achimaatz and Yonatan, respectively. Whatever news you hear of developments in the city, you shall convey it to me. So Hushai Re'eh David, the friend of David, the counsel of David, the advisor of David, in the closest sense of the term, entered the city really just before Avshalom's arrival. So even as David is in flight, even as the court is exiled, even as the city has been surrendered without a fight, there is already a very small glimmer of hope with the appearance of Hushai that David now directs to undermine the council of Achitophel, with the return of the Ark to the city through the agency of Tzadok and Evyatar, and the hope and the prayer that God would allow David to once again gaze upon his habitation, all of this a glimmer of hope in an otherwise completely bleak landscape of developments. Next time we will see, of course, what happens when Avshalom enters the city and the rebellion actually gets off the ground. Thank you again for listening to Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Happy, a production of Purdue's Institute of Jewish Studies in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network. If you liked what you just heard, please give a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.